0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Hussein Mohsen, and today I'll be talking with Roberto Gonzalez, author of Connected, How a Mexican Village Built Its Own Cell Phone Network. This is a book at the intersection of anthropology, history of science and technology, and Latin American studies. Dr. Con- Gonzalez is a cultural anthropologist whose work focuses on science, technology, and society, Militarization and culture, processes of social and cultural control, and ethics in social science. He is currently the chair of the Department of Anthropology at San Jose, San Jose State University in California, and a prolific author and editor of several several books. The most recent of which is connected, which we will discuss today. Roberto, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Hussein, and thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, I'm glad you're with us. And before we delve into the book, uh, I'd like to ask you about your own story, particularly where you where did you go for grad school, and how did you become interested in the book's topic?
1: Sure. Well, um, I'm originally from the South Texas border area. Uh, I grew up in a small town uh, at the very southern tip of the state of Texas, and I didn't come to anthropology right away. Um, I studied. Mechanical engineering for four years at the University of Texas at Austin, and then as a senior, I discovered the social sciences Um, and in fact, the first course I took in social sciences was an introductory course in cultural anthropology, which changed my life uh, because I changed my major very soon after that. Um, Very soon afterwards, I began applying to graduate programs and to my surprise, I was accepted uh, at UC Berkeley. And started uh, studying anthropology there in the early 1990s. Um, Although I became a cultural anthropologist, I always held on to that interest in science and technology. That's probably part of my four years of training as a mechanical engineering student. Um, And I think I've always held on to that interest in science and technology. And um, the most recent book, Connected, is, I think, an attempt to bridge those two areas of interest for me, which are uh, the world of culture and social organization um, and the world of science and technology, especially 21st century digital communications technologies.
0: That's that's quite interesting. Uh, in the beginning of the book and touching on the title, you start by differentiating between connection and communication.
1: Can you tell us a bit more about this distinction? Sure. Yes. I see. Um, I mean, the way I do it in the book is by looking at the etymology uh, of these two terms. I think oftentimes these days we use the terms in the United States interchangeably as if communication is always a form of connection or as if the two are somehow uh, equivalent to one another. And after thinking about it more, I realized that communication and connection are, are two often quite different things. Um, although... Uh, And part of the reason I come to that conclusion is thinking about, again, the root of the words. Um, Communication has to do with uh, basically uh, relationships and an interchange uh, between people in particular. And as such, I interpret communication as something that can be uh, often improvised and where you can, uh, for example, in a conversation, move back and forth. So I think the, the idea of a conversation is something very different from the idea of a connection. Connection uh, comes from the same root word as Nexus, which means linkage linked uh, in, in a sense. And so uh, one of the observa- observations I make in the book early on is that connections often form uh, often have a kind of um, uh, a, a kind of aspect to them in which you're locked into something. Uh, and I think social media, is a good example of this. Um, when we um, when we interact on social media, there's often this sense of obligation um, and linkage to, uh, between the messenger and the recipient of the message. That's quite different, I would say, than than a conversation, which tends to be, at least in my mind, more open ended. We will certainly
0: touch on these topics during the interview. Uh, but in the first chapter, you start setting the ground for the story of the book, which takes place in the uh, Pueblo of Atalaya. You first start telling us about uh, the brie- a brief history of the state of Oaxaca, and then a small, uh, not necessarily a small region, but a part of Oaxaca and the northern part of the state, the Rincon, before moving to tell us about Uh, the town of uh, Talia. But there's a principle that you start with, which is the principle of uh, comunalidad, which was first articulated in the late 1980s. And this is a principle that was shaped by multiple other uh, factors, including resistance to colonialism historically and resistance also to privatization. Uh, What is this principle and how... in an introductory form, uh, does it relate to the story of the
1: book? Sure. Well, as you stated, um, the book is set in, in a small uh, indigenous community um, in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. Uh, the full name of the community is Talea de Castro, and um, it's a community of about um, two and a half thousand people. Uh, it's a face-to-face community that I... Uh, lived in for two years as a graduate student in the 1990s, and so I've become very familiar uh, with people in the community over time. Uh, The villagers, for the most part, speak um, two languages. Most are bilingual in Spanish and Zapotec. uh, Zapotec being one of the largest um, uh, indigenous languages in terms of the number of speakers uh, in Mexico. Now, the principle of comunalidad, uh, you are correct, it was I think most are um, most uh, explicitly articulated during the 1980s and 90s by a couple of um, indigenous intellectuals, the Zapotec uh, anthropologist Jaime Martínez Luna being one, and the Mije um, scholar Floriberto Díaz being uh, the second. The Mije are also a very large indigenous group from the state of Oaxaca, and The idea essentially of comunalidad is, the and you can tell just from the word itself, that it has to do with communality. That's a a literal translation of uh, this concept of comunalidad. Translated to English, it would be communality. Um, From the point of view of the scholars who developed the idea in the 1980s, really, uh, there are several different dimensions to comunalidad. Uh, And behind them all is the idea of collective, the collectivity, collective uh, celebration on the one hand, as experienced through the fiestas that these villages celebrate um, several times a year, Uh, the notion of collective labor, shared labor, uh, which is uh, connected with a form called the tequio, which are literally, uh, you can think of them as work parties where citizens adult citizens are required, uh, instead of paying taxes, they're required to dedicate several days of service every year uh, to the village government. And that could be for the construction of roads or for the maintenance of streets uh, or uh, sewage and different kinds of infrastructural projects that the village may have going on. Um, And then communality um, has another dimension as well, which is the, the notion of Um, collective gift-giving or sharing. And that is demonstrated most clearly through the practice of uh, what in Oaxaca is called the gozona. That's an indigenous word that basically means a gift. Um, So this is the the principle of reciprocal exchange. Uh, For example, if there's a a wedding or a funeral or uh, work that needs to be done in the fields, you give the gift of food or labor or volunteer service to your neighbor with the idea that at some point in the future that person will return the favor to you. So these are three of the key aspects of comunalidad. It's this sense of collective identity and collective life as expressed through festival and feasting, as expressed through work, uh, and the obligation to provide labor to the community itself. And then third, um, through gift-giving and reciprocity.
0: Beside the comunalidad, Principle, you tell us about a quite interesting aspect that often goes overlooked about the Rincon region and which you also describe as an extraordinary service to humanity. Uh, it has to do with the scientific experiments and knowledge that are disseminated by uh, the Rincon farmers about the maize crops. Uh, what's this extraordinary service?
1: Sure, this is um, more, much more directly connected Uh, related to my first book, uh, which was essentially a book about the farmers of the Rincon area, which are the vast majority of families are are farming families or campesinos. Um, But drawing on the research of of others, including uh, archaeologists and uh, ethnobotanists um, and historians, it became clear to me uh, in the process of doing my work on farmers in the Rincon that the service that these people are providing to humanity is that they are essentially the safeguards of the biological diversity of maize, which is, as I'm sure you know, one of the most important food crops uh, on the planet. And so, what they have been able to do over the course of several thousand years uh, is to maintain this enormously rich genetic diversity in the in the in this one particular species of corn. Um, by maintaining literally thousands of different uh, what are called land races or varieties um, that uh, basically uh, safeguard the, the the security the biosecurity of, of the world's um, corn supply uh, to me that's significant because it i think the stereotype of campesino small-scale farmers is often that they are uh, unsophisticated or that they uh, somehow are not scientific in their approach and what I found in living in this community during the 1990s and early 2000s was entirely the opposite, that these were very inquisitive scientists who loved adopting new crops or, or experimenting with new new crops to see if they would succeed, um, and who were committed, absolutely committed to maintaining the diversity uh, of, of maize, of corn, which is at the base of their food supply. Um, it also so happens that Rincón lies very close to the original point of domestication of maize. And that has come out of a lot of um, bioarchaeological research and ethnobotanical research over the years. Um, so to me, that really sensitized me to the real talent that the people of this region of Oaxaca have in terms of innovation and experimentation uh, and the scientific method, scientific... Uh, they've got this kind of note, uh, very... Uh, sophisticated view of, of of experimentation and adopting what works and rejecting what doesn't.
0: In addition to farmers, you tell us about what we can call a group of uh, another group of protagonists uh, in the story. They are the intermediaries. Uh, intermediaries historically had different roles, um, and regarding the topic of the book, they were very instrumental to the very construction of the local cell network. Who are the intermediaries in our times and how did they broadly help connect the dots to build the network?
1: Sure. Um, well, as I said, my first book, Zapotec Science, was about the farmers of this village. Um, but there's another very important group of people who I do refer to in the book as the native intermediaries. Um, and this is following the work of the historian Yana who's looked at this class of indigenous uh, people but during the Spanish colonial period, and she describes them as playing a critical role as liaisons between the majority indigenous population and uh, the Spanish colonizers of that time being the 1500s through the 1800s. Today, the native intermediaries are different to the extent that um, they, uh, they... are not necessarily elites in an economic sense, but they tend to be elites in the sense that they um, often have more formal education in uh, schools and universities. So in Thalea, this community of 2,400 people, there are probably, I would say, about 500 of them or so that have gone off to get either high school or college degrees, or in some cases, both, and have decided to return to the village now, you can't get a university degree or a college degree or a high school degree in Talea because there are no high schools, much less universities. So you have to leave to the cities if you want that level of higher education, a formal education, I should say. Now, um, these people, once they return to Talea after having lived in the city for several years, um, often come with very new ideas and expectations and goals compared to their uh, fellow citizens many of whom rarely leave the village. Um, there's no reason really for a campesino or a farmer to leave Talea, especially if he or she is committed to farming uh, the fields on a daily basis. So these native intermediaries you can think of as people that have a, an urban outlook because they have lived in the city for five or perhaps 10 or 15 years or more. In some cases, they, live, they have lived in the United States, in Los Angeles or um, Seattle, And have made a conscious decision to return to the village for various reasons. But they come with a very different, uh, if you want, a very different worldview and a very different set of aspirations. And that group is the group that played the critical role in launching, helping to launch the the cell phone network, this autonomous community-based cell phone network in 2013. Now, the role that they played specifically in this case was first to launch a community radio station which was, I guess you can think of it in a way, as a pirate radio station, because it did not have the approval of the government regulatory agencies. Uh, but then more importantly, a few years later, what they did was to serve as liaisons between a non-governmental organization, an NGO called Rizomatica, that had the technical expertise uh, and the relationships with technical experts that helped the village launch their own cell phone network. So it's not as if this village was able to create its own cell phone network out of whole cloth or without any help. But uh, the role of the native intermediaries was to build a bridge between the village and its government on the one hand. And on the other hand, these uh, two or three different NGOs uh, who actually helped build the technological infrastructure to make it happen. I'll get
0: later in the interview to the NGO in particular because I could tell while reading the book that you were critical as other Talia, as Talians, uh, Talian, as Thalians, Thalian characters in the book who were unhappy with how the NGO uh, managed the work. Uh, but before doing so, you tell us about Thalia as, a, like we said, some uh, a place where there is uh, commonly that, but also it's, uh, it's a place that's historically valid autonomy. To a great extent, but also had openness to its surroundings and to the world. There are developments that started around the mid-nineteenth century that have led Talia to become one of the most important cultural and commercial hubs in the Rincón region. What were these developments?
1: Yes. Well, we could go way back, as I said, uh, into the even uh, prior to the twentieth century. Yes, in the nineteenth century. Uh, early 19th century, actually, um, this region became a very important center for uh, mining, uh, first when it was a part of the Spanish Empire, uh, and then later on after the creation of the Mexican uh, national state in the 1820s. Um, So for that reason, uh, Talea became very important because of the silver mines that uh, lay nearby. Um, And as a market town, Talea itself, the modern history of of Talea, uh, is really a history of the development of a, marking t- a market town that supported uh, the miners and provided food and supplies to them. So it became a kind of commercial hub um, more than 100 years ago and has maintained that position ever since. Um, Dalea, from its very founding in the 1500s was actually a village that consisted largely of people from different villages. So it was not established as a community until after the Spaniards arrived. Um, And so it's always, I think, been seen as a kind of cosmopolitan place from the point of view of other villages in the Rincon, and one that has always been open to outside people and outside ideas. Um, I think oftentimes we anthropologists, as well as the general public, have uh, a stereotype of an ind- indigenous communities as somehow being more or less fundamentally a- alike and similar. Uh, when we, for example, if we think about a rural Mexican indigenous village. But one thing you find out very quickly, if you actually live in communities like these, is that there are dramatic varieties from one village to another in terms of worldview, in terms of willingness to accept ideas from uh, outside the region, uh, in terms of its welcoming attitude towards outsiders, and Talaí, I would say, is at an extreme in terms of its willingness to embrace outside ideas and outsiders into its community. Uh, and I've, and I've traveled enough through this part of um, of Oaxaca to know that this is not only Talean's self image of themselves, but it's also an image that neighboring villagers have of the community as it being a very as this place being a very open. Uh, uh, community, uh, sometimes to its detriment, uh, for example, if outsiders come seeking to exploit villagers or um, that sort of thing. But often uh, that openness has worked to Talayas' advantage. And I think the cell phone network is a good example of that. In addition to this
0: openness to surrounding villages and to the world at large, you also tell us that Talians attempted also to establish close nexuses with other worldly beings in the third chapter, which is titled Enchanted. And then uh, you use some examples to establish a link between uh, those rituals that are preserved in Talia and the willingness and planning to establish a new cell phone network locally in the village. Um, if you can give us an example that has helped you establish this link between the supernatural and the digital form of connectivity.
1: Sure. Um, I'll, I'm happy to do that. First, though, I want to return just once more to the idea of openness because I have mentioned mining, but there's another important aspect to that openness and where it comes from. And that is uh, actually two things that are related. One is the, the uh, introduction of coffee into the region, about 100 years ago, which has become the main cash crop and has linked Talea and opened it up to the global economy for uh, for better and worse. Um, And also migration, which has been a hugely important part of village life, um, so that now literally thousands of people who were born in the village live elsewhere, either in large cities within Mexico, like Mexico City or Tijuana, or in the United States, in places like Atlanta, Chicago and um, Los Angeles, the greater Los Angeles area. So those are other examples of this sort of openness and how the village itself has become um, intertwined with, um, with the global economy and with global uh, patterns of, of movement and, and migration. Now, to answer your question uh, regarding the nexus or connections betw- that the lands have with the supernatural, uh, with, uh, with the saints and, and with their gods, Uh, and other uh, supernatural entities um, and how that is related to um, digital technologies in the 21st century, Um, at first it may not seem obvious. It's not until you start looking more closely at the way that Talians are using their cell phones or the ways in which Talians are using, for example, social media uh, or YouTube, just to take that one example, uh, and how The new digital technologies reflect the cultural importance of their ongoing spiritual relationships and connections with supernatural beings. So to me, probably the most obvious example of this would be um, to look at what I call the virtual village on YouTube, for example. So let me explain what the virtual village is first, and then I'll get to a specific example. Um, The Virtual Village, I developed this idea in my book as a way to describe a version of Talea that in some ways reflects village life. Um, And so, for example, if we take a platform like YouTube uh, and you do a search on Talea de Castro, you will find literally hundreds of uh, videos posted uh, to YouTube, mostly by Taleans themselves who have filmed these events, either with their phones or with cameras, and have posted them online. And I call it a virtual village because, yes, it's, it does depict certain moments in the daily life of villagers, um, but it's virtual in two senses. One, because it is online, not a, a material uh, version of the village. But two, it also gives a somewhat skewed or distorted view of village life because the vast majority of those posts on YouTube are for events like uh, for example fiestas or basketball tournaments or other events that really highlight a special moment in the year of a village Um, so it's not an accurate i would say or even close to accurate representation of what everyday village life like uh, but it's important nonetheless as a virtual uh, sort of representation that villagers themselves are posting uh, to youtube so to give one example of this, some of the most important posts um, that you find in this virtual village, again, in the example of YouTube, using that example, but we could just as easily look at Facebook or, or other platforms that villagers are using, uh, what we find are oftentimes uh, ceremonies that have a religious aspect to them, uh, or fiestas, which are at their base, religious festivals that are, that are held several times a year. Uh, And so I think that's a good example of how the lands are using um, these new technologies of connection to basically um, demonstrate, but also um, disseminate their commitment to supernatural forces and their deference to supernatural uh, customs and, and beings as well.
0: Well, this is in Chapter 6 in particular, which I very much enjoyed when you talk, which is titled Posts, and you're exactly right about the posts of Italians, be it on Facebook or on YouTube. And there's a nuanced perspective and a balanced position that you take with respect to social media and higher connectivity using cell phones in general, where you acknowledge the benefits of having this level of digital connectivity, but also ask the readers not to resort to tech utopianism that's perpetuated by the tech industry that's concentrated in silicon valley Uh, if you could give us an example on each side of this um, of this uh, call that you make in the chapter
1: sure yes well as an example of the positive um, uh, outcomes of the rapid introduction of these new technologies uh, and here I, i I'm talking equally about cell phones, the actual hardware as well as the 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 kind of platforms that they are that they are used that they use to um, to communicate um, their ideas and and so on. The positive side, clearly, for a community with thousands of villagers living either internationally or in very distant cities, is the facility with which they can communicate, the ease with which they can reach out to their relatives who live, um, in some cases, thousands and thousands of miles away. Apart from that, there's also the advantage of um, villagers who live, uh, who have migrated elsewhere, to maintain uh, a sense of identity and belonging to the community in which they were born, and oftentimes which they left as teenagers, as, as very young people. Um, So it has had that benefit, that beneficial um, effect of reinforcing bonds of community, bonds of family, uh, pride in identity as Indigenous people, um, in a way that's very different than when I first visited the village in 1994. I mean, back then, to maintain contact with your relatives in Los Angeles. If you had sent a son there, or, or if your daughter had decided to move to Mexico City, you had to use one of the, the three telephones in the village and pay lots of money uh, for each minute that you spoke, uh, and then write letters. That was your other option. And so within the space of 20 years or so, all of that has changed, and now you can have daily communication using WhatsApp's chat, uh, video chat function, and so the level of um of of connection, the level of intimacy in terms of communication, is is dramatically different compared to twenty years ago. For that reason, so in some ways that's obvious, but it's also deceptive because I, as you state, um, as you just noted, that does kind of fall right into the narrative of the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, which take this. Uh, Yes, techno utopian view that you know all, all these technologies are just drawing us closer together as a as a as a as a commu- as a global community, uh, and that's a very I think that's a very seductive kind of idea, because there are negative consequences as well, and that's obviously visible in a face to face community like Dalea, where as I demonstrate in the book, uh, we can see a kind of digital divide that's formed within the village itself. Um, because not everybody has equal access, uh, for example, to social media or to the internet. Although cell phones are pretty widespread at this point, uh, internet access is not as straightforward and not all villagers have it, nor do they necessarily have the time or the leisure to be able to accessing a Facebook account or or WhatsApp. Um, so the village is a place with very large class differences so that you've got some quite affluent families that own stores and may uh, be coffee merchants or uh, or may have um, maybe professionals, maybe doctors, uh, physicians, or school teachers who have much easier access to uh, the Internet than a campesino family that may spend lots of its time out in the fields, uh, that may not have the ease of access to Internet, and so forth. So one negative consequence is, I think, the... Um, the increasing digital divide within the village itself another uh negative aspect would be uh very similar to i think what many people have observed in the united states and south korea and many other places which is it's the kind of addictive tendency uh of these technologies um, especially among young people Um, so there are concerns in the village uh, about young Teenagers, for example, spending too much time online or being distracted by social media constantly. Uh, and then there's another, uh, I think, set of concerns that have emerged as well in many of the communities in, in this part of Oaxaca and the Rincon, uh, which is the extent to which these technologies can can facilitate the spread of disinformation, political propaganda, uh, and, and other kinds of... Um, uh, negative consequences that we have observed in our own society um, over the past few years. So, l- villagers in a place like Dala are not immune to some of the same downsides of these powerful powerful technologies that um, that we ourselves are faced with.
0: You mentioned already the digital divide, which seems to have moved, uh, you know, to the inner parts of the village after this higher level of connectivity. But one would ask why. Did Talaya itself, as a pueblo, didn't have any phone network coverage
1: before year 2013? Yeah, to me, that, that was one of the most fascinating parts of the story. Um, because we haven't mentioned, we've talked briefly about the role of the NGO in helping bring service to the village. But we haven't yet asked the question, why didn't the village have cell phone service before? Especially since that is a right that's guaranteed in the Mexican constitution and has been for a long time, equal access uh, to the latest communications technology that's written into the Mexican constitution. So why is it that that would not be the case and that TALEA would not have this technology until 2013? Well, the reason is that when, first of all, I should say that talean citizens petitioned uh, first um, some of the multinational corporations um, that provide telecom service in the country. So this would be America Movil is the largest and then um, Movistar is the second largest. So if you might you might think of these companies as equivalent to say Verizon or AT&T or uh, T-Mobile in our own country. Um, They were denied when the villagers asked for service. What the company said is your village is too remote, it's too far away and it would be too expensive for us to provide service. Uh, and that happened for several years and this was several after several attempts to um, ask the cell phone companies or the telecom companies to provide service. When that failed, the villagers then uh, reached out to their government officials um, and their their elected officials and uh, pleaded with them uh, asking them please provide service. this is something that is considered a right in Mexico and again we're largely um, they were politely, denied their request, again, with the explanation being, uh, there's no feasible way for us to provide service. This, of course, uh, fits into a longer pattern of what I would call a kind of um, neglect on the part of a government and oftentimes on the part of the corporate world, uh, not just in Mexico, but throughout Latin America, uh, where indigenous communities aren't, are not really given a fair opportunity uh, to participate and enjoy in the same um, the, the same kind of um, things that someone in, in a city uh, might. Uh, um, and so and here I'm talking specifically about rural communities, but I think more broadly this applies to indigenous communities uh, as a whole. And so given that situation, and the way I describe it in the book is to a certain extent, this is a story of David versus Goliath, where uh, you've got this village, which is a kind of David up against incredible odds, Finding a way to beat Goliath um, by making uh, this connection with the NGO to actually create its own mini telecom company without the approval uh, or without the support of government or um, the private sector or corporations. So big telecom wouldn't help, big government wouldn't help. So what the villagers did was to basically find their own solution and, and they were able to do it themselves with some help, again, from the NGO. In addition to the NGO, you tell us that there was a conference
0: on indigenous media that took place in 2011 in Talaya, where there were, I would say, four main protagonists that led the project of creating the local network. The first two are the founders of the radio station you mentioned earlier, but also there was a chance encounter between two other younger folks at the conference. Who are those four main characters?
1: Sure, um, well, correct, yes. The, the first two I mentioned are, uh, are villagers. Um, I call them um, Kendra and Abram in the, uh, in the book. These are pseudonyms uh, you know, to protect their, their identities. But yes, these were villagers that had been uh, born and raised in Talea, went to um, Oaxaca City for high school and later for college, and then returned to the village as young adults. Um, and, you know, basically, um, among other things, created this community radio station. Um, and they were really the, the leaders uh, of the charge to to get this cell phone network going. Um, so yes, the other two people were um and these are their real names peter bloom uh, and eric huerta who are um two professionals Uh, peter bloom is uh from the united states originally um but he had uh, experience helping native uh, communities indigenous communities create their own communication systems uh, and got very involved in indigenous media in the state of oaxaca and that's really um where he got to meet Kendra and Abram, the Talayan um, young people uh, during this, this workshop. The other person who was present uh, at that workshop and, or conference in 2011 was Eric Huerta. And he uh, is a telecommunications lawyer by training. He's um, a Mexican citizen. But uh, like Peter, was very passionate about um, providing the kind of technical and legal support that would assist them in creating their own telecommunications network. So this was really the key, uh, I think, meeting um, of two very sophisticated groups of people. On the one hand, indigenous villagers with experience in uh, do-it-yourself communications. And on the other hand, these uh, very technologically and legally savvy um, experts from NGOs And these workshops oftentimes in rural Oaxaca and other parts of rural Mexico are very interesting places where you have these kinds of alliances uh, that get formed uh, with very exciting and interesting projects that are often proposed. Um, During my time in the Rincon, many of these projects were often focused on ecotourism and uh, sustainable development projects uh, that were often kind of joint ventures between villages and NGOs based in Oaxaca City. Um, in, the, in the 21st century, I think a lot of these experiments are focused around exactly this kind of thing, which is um, how to provide indigenous villages with all that the digital communications technologies have to offer. And so I think that meeting in 2011 was really kind of representative of um, lots of projects that um, have been undertaken over the years between indigenous communities like Balea uh, and NGOs.
0: You tell us in this chapter about, like you said, the legal acrobatics that uh, the main leaders of the project had to go through, the political and local mobilization, also the assistance of hackers who were able to use open source software to bring all of the pieces of the puzzle together for the first deployment in March 2013, which was considered a big success that brought very affordable services. Like we're talking about 1.5 cents per minute for calls to the U.S., for example, which is one tenth of the price um, using landlines. We're talking about local calls and texts for free. Uh, Later, this was expanded to free calls to Seattle, Mexico City, and Los Angeles. You tell us about all of those achievements and all of those technical and legal acrobatics that were done and that led the network to become a very popular one. But shortly after, we're talking about a bit more than a year, it seems that powerful institutions, be it corporate or otherwise, were not very happy with this accomplishment. So what happened on May 12, 2014, in a local market in Talaya?
1: Right. Earlier, I I mentioned that this story, when I first heard it and read about it, uh, reminded me a great deal of the story of David and Goliath, right? You've got a small community going up against uh, big, powerful institutions uh, and basically slaying the, the the giant, right, and and uh, and living happily ever after. Uh, but what I found out was that what happened in Talea fairly soon after, as you said, just over a year after the introduction of the community network, was that uh, Goliath uh, took charge once again. And the story is a really fascinating one because it it seems that really two forces were at work, at least two forces, and and actually three, Uh, and I'll talk about each of these in turn. The first was a kind of political backlash that uh, happened really just several months after the creation of the cell phone network. So this would have been in 2013. And what happened was that there were several uh, state and a few federal politicians that really um, did everything they could to try to undermine the cell phone network. So it seems that they may have colluded with local officials. Um, in Talea. Uh, they c- very vocally criticized um, the Talean the the people who were managing Talea's cell phone network, uh, accusing them of, um, you know, mismanagement and hinting that they were um, perhaps misusing funds and things like that. So there was a very clear political uh, effort to undermine the cell phone network and. Um, it's not difficult to understand why that would happen for me anyway. Um, the cell phone network, the very fact that it had to be created by the villagers themselves, really exposed a kind of um, um, the kind of neglect that government had been showing Talea and many other indigenous communities for years. Um, so that was the first factor. Uh, the second factor, b- besides this smear campaign, And it happened, as you say, um, in May of 2014, was that um, one of those giant telecom companies, Movistar, uh, actually set up shop in the center of town on a market day. The market is held every Monday. It's like a farmer's market, basically, in Thalea, that draws together uh, hundreds and hundreds of villagers from surrounding villages and What they did was to uh, basically promote or basically announce the arrival of a new cell service that was to be a commercial cell service, promising villagers the opportunity to uh, basically set up a subscription at a discount rate um, that would allow villagers also to access Um, internet services, something which the community cell phone network did not do at the time. So just to put this in perspective, imagine that you're in a community that has created its own cell phone network, but you can only make calls or texts. You can't use a smartphone in any sort of meaningful way because you cannot access the internet or its services. And then suddenly a company arrives and tells you that for just a little bit more, they'll sign you up for a service in which you can have internet access uh, and and data plans and and things like that. And so what that led to uh, over time, very quickly, within a matter of months, was many, many hundreds of villagers abandoning the cell phone network that they had created themselves as a community and instead embracing um, the service that was being offered by Movistar, that's the company that that arrived in Talea. They were able to do this, by the way, with the blessing of the village um, leadership. So every year, new village authorities are elected by the population. And it so happens at this time around, uh, the village leaders were uh, very open to working with Movistar. Um, but it does raise an interesting question, which is why Movistar didn't do this from the very beginning. And in my mind, it's pretty clear that what they were trying to do uh, was to begin to establish new markets in this region that they had ignored for a long time. Uh, and also took advantage they were taking advantage of the situation, I think, to uh, as a kind of public relations uh, stunt, a kind of publicity stunt to make themselves look good uh, and look like they cared about uh, indigenous communities. Um, there's a third factor too that I should probably mention because I often get the question, why is it that villagers would abandon the cell phone network, the homegrown do-it-yourself network that they did themselves? And the answer to that question is a complicated one. Um, but what it comes down to, I think, is one, let's keep in mind that Movistar, like so many other corporations in Mexico, um, has a lot of prestige associated with it. And I think a lot of villagers w- really value that prestige that comes with, uh, with the power and, and uh, influence of a big company and being associated with it. I mean, from the point of view of some Talians, they were the first, right, to not only set up their network, but also to have a commercial service offering internet access. Um, and then the other part of this is that the Thaleans, as I mentioned several times in the book, as a community, they are very pragmatic uh, and, and are not driven so much by ideology um, so much as driven by the concept of problem solving, what's the quickest way to get to the, to the solution that we're looking for, to get to the place we want to get to, in this case, in technological terms, in terms of digital technologies. And by 2014, I think for many villagers, the answer to that was clear, which was, let's go ahead and give up our network, our own network, and instead give Movistar a chance to redeem themselves by giving us quality service at an affordable price.
0: Well, that's a point that's very related to what you uh, bring up in the last chapter when you talk about the story of the networks, the local networks rise, but then decline as not necessarily a story of triumph, but also not a story of defeat. And it's rather a departure from this framing of triumph versus defeat, but more of practicality um, and pragmatism. Uh, but I would like to ask about the NGO because uh, the same NGO whose role was central in the creation of the local network was highlighted as the Movistar campaign was succeeding to replace or dominate the market uh, in Talaya. Uh, some Talayans, including uh, some of the leaders of the local network project, uh, expressed their discon- discontent towards this NGO and accused it of taking kind of a different direction. What was this NGO accused of doing, accused to be to have done?
1: Right, well, let me be clear, because this is, it, in terms of organizations, it can be uh, quite confusing. So uh, the NGO, Raisomantica, was the organization that... Uh, was created by Peter Bloom and Eric Huerta. Um, so this organization is based in Oaxaca City, it still exists, it's still thriving actually. Um, and what they did was to provide the technical and legal support to actually create the, the, the structure, the infrastructure. Once they did their work, they basically left T'Alea. They would return every so often to make sure that everything was running smoothly, but the management of the network was placed in the hands of Kendra and Abram those two Talians that were basically, um, they, they were, there were new positions created for them within the village government. I think, believe their titles were something like, um, directors of the commission of, uh, community, uh, t- telecommunications. Um, so they were, they, that was legally speaking, they did not form an NGO. They just maintained, uh, and managed the network, including, um, uh, managing the subscriptions because it did cost something for villagers to actually join uh, as subscribers to the community network uh, in terms of investing in new equipment or upgrading the equipment that they had and so forth. So the problems within the village itself, the internal problems were more like villagers, people from Talea, beginning to criticize the managers, the local managers who were villagers also of mismanagement of uh, lack of transparency, uh, of ineffective management, and so on. Um, I heard nothing but positive comments uh, from villagers about the NGO itself, about Raisomatica and Peter Bloom and Eric Huerta. Um, The criticism seemed very narrowly focused on the Taleans themselves who were managing the the network. And again, this is literally uh, two people. Uh, And so... There were, for example, accusations that one of the managers was um, trying to launch a political career, uh, accusations that another one was um, basically uh, not being transparent about the way funds were being used, and so forth. So it was a, an, a, an unfortunate case in that in where there seemed to be some internal tensions that really split uh, the community in some really significant ways. Um, that eventually, I think, contributed to the downfall of the community-based network. Because I think on the whole, apart from pragmatism, there's another value that's very important for many Talans, and it's the idea that let's try to keep peace among ourselves as much as we can. Let's try to live in harmony rather than fight with each other or bigger or, or, um, or factionalize. And I think that's been a kind of survival strategy that has developed over the course of many years, going back to the Spanish colonial period when it was in community's best interest to stick together uh, and to show a united front so that they could deal with the exploitation uh, of the Spanish colonizers. So um, that's my interpretation of what happened. Um, Again, it's hard for me to determine specific questions like, was there really mismanagement or did this really happen to me? That's really besides the point. What I try to do is give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and just assume that people have different interpretations of what happened and try to make some sense of that and put it in a historical and cultural context um, as someone who has more than 25 years of experience um, with the village and, and being in, in, in contact with the people there and learning, continuing to learn about the history and, and dynamics of this uh, really remarkable place.
0: In these contexts of both autonomy and pragmatism, you also tell us later in the book that although the local phone network lost most of its customers and it probably now is not working anymore, the story is far from over. For example, the Indigenous Communities Telecommunications Network, the TIE, the TIC, now provides internet connection and other data services to its customers. And this process is an ongoing one, and it will likely remain so. Um, I know we've held you up for a significant amount of time, but I usually like to wrap up interviews with questions about a contemporary issue that relates to the book's topic. And I know we already talked about uh, misinformation uh, and the spread of misinformation and how social networks could be uh, affecting the social fabric, being in Talia or pretty much everywhere maybe in the world. Uh, So I'd like to ask you in relation to the recent news about whistleblower Francis Hogan, uh, who recently revealed uh, about Facebook's deception and prioritization of profit over users' well-being and society's well-being at large. Um, It's a very open-ended question, but I'm curious about your perspective, particularly because you are close to Silicon Valley. You are in San Jose, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley, actually. Um, and you study the anthropology of science and technology. So where do you see in the near future these companies heading in terms of their lack of transparency and the accumulation and abuse of power? Will they keep growing in that direction? Or do you think there might be forces that would pull them back or uh, get them to be smaller?
1: Yeah, Well, that's a, a huge question. And um, I, I think that's an open question as well. It's hard to know where things are headed. Um, what I will say is part of the reason that for me, it was very important to do this book um, is precisely because I'm in the heart of Silicon Valley. And I'm surrounded all the time uh, by colleagues and, and by media that, that repeat the same line over and over, which is kind of the sense that that innovation starts and stops in Silicon Valley um, as if, you know, no ideas uh, or creative solutions really come from any other part of the world. Uh, you know, uh, it's a very sort of biased and, and ignorant uh, perspective, I think. Uh, and so telling the story of Talea and um, also of organizations like Rasumatica and TIC, which, as you've just said, it's, it's evidence to me that the Talean experiment was not so much a failure as the beginning of a new chapter um, with indigenous communities in Latin America, which is the establishment of autonomous networks uh, using the most modern 21st century digital technologies uh, to get the job done. So to me, to return to the question of the social media giants and the tech industry as a whole, uh, and will they continue their kind of dominance and, and um, uh, this very kind of one-sided um, uh architecture of of the internet and uh, telecommunications more generally i don't think so i mean i think i think um you know it's hard to tell when but i look at places like talea um and i and it's just one of many many uh, small remote uh, indigenous communities throughout the world that are um leveraging the technologies to meet their needs and um and, and uh, to use the technologies to further their locally-based goals. I think the next step in this is going to be the development of um, locally-based social media platforms, socially-based um, alternatives to uh, communication without surveillance, uh, without government interference. Um, I think it's still some time before those things are realized but if you look at the work of um, someone like uh, Ramesh, Ramesh uh, Srinivasan, who um, oh. has written this wonderful book called Beyond the Valley, um, which is all about um, uh, innovators in all over the world, in African countries, in A- 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 Southeast Asian countries. Thalea itself is mentioned as an example. Um, it's clear that, um, that something is changing, and uh, it's not always easy to see those changes uh, unless you're doing – cultural anthropology, you know, in a remote location where these experiments are happening. Um, but to me, it makes it a very exciting time to be studying uh, the, the intersection of the anthropo- of anthropology and, and uh, science and technology studies. There's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned um, through the, the experiments of places like Thalea and many others as well.
0: So in the last chapter, you tell us how this book project has reconnected you to Talia after you originally did your fieldwork during your doc- doctoral studies in the village. Um, first off, are you still in touch with the friends you made in Talia? And second, what are your current projects that you're working on?
1: Yeah, the, um, I end the book with a, a very short epilogue, which is very reflective. And um, in it, I describe how After having done my doctoral research there in the late 1990s, um, I continued visiting the village for a few years, um, but then got really kind of swept up in my own professional obligations as a tenure-track professor at my university. And I had less and less time uh, to stay in contact with villagers. And eventually, I did lose touch for almost 10 years. Um, No letters, no phone calls, uh, nothing. and that was the period when I think many of us stopped writing letters and many of us um, stopped making phone calls and instead started texting or emailing each other. Uh, and so I fell victim to that. Um, and I acknowledge that in, in the epilogue of the book. Um, what wound up happening professionally was that my uh, work took a different turn as well. I became very interested in the anthropology of uh, militarism and militarization as a, as a trend. And so given that interest, it became very easy to lose sight of Talea. Uh, For me, it was exciting to take on a new research project. Uh, And so I let Talea slip out of focus. I let the Rincón uh, kind of disappear off my radar screen. And um, it was precisely this case of the cell phones uh, and the struggle to establish their own cell phone network that got me reconnected and gave me a jolt and made me realize how important it was to get back in touch with them. And so I did um in 2017 i believe it was and i've stayed in touch with them ever since and the fascinating thing has been that it's been mostly first through skype and more recently through whatsapp and so to answer your question yes i've stayed very much in touch with the villagers Um, in fact just last month i heard from friends uh, who called me using a whatsapp um tele telechat and so we were able to talk for close to an hour and and get up to date on um on uh, events in the village right now, the big news is that they've gotten their first COVID vaccines. So people are very happy about that after having been locked down um, for the last year and a half and not permitting any vehicles or people from the outside to come in. That's been very difficult for villagers, as you might imagine, because they see themselves as a very open uh, Pueblo and to have to lock down for this reason has been difficult to them. Um, at the same time, the, cell phones have made it easier to bear with that reality and to deal with it. And so um, I've got two projects at the moment, one that I'm still in the very early stages of of, um, thinking through, but it has precisely to do with this. How has Talea dealt with the COVID crisis? And it's been in the headlines, this little village of of just over 2,000 people. Uh, Recently, it's been in the Mexican media because uh, for almost uh, up until very, very recently, they had no COVID cases whatsoever, Uh, And it's not the geographical remoteness, but it's the very um, abrupt and swift decision that village authorities made to lock down the village and enforce social distancing and um, a curfew and all the rest of the the steps that they felt they needed to do to maintain public health. So in my mind, I'm thinking about that as a possible book project uh, for the future, is how this village stopped COVID in its tracks. and now, as I said, happily they have uh, access to vaccines now. So hopefully things will get better for them uh, soon in terms of them being able to open up again. Uh, the other project is somewhat different, but it's the common theme here is the technology angle. And this this book is this project is is finished up pretty much now, and uh, it's a project on militarization, and it has to do with um, the uses of big data by military and intelligence agencies. And so um, I've wrote a book on that topic over the last four or five years, which um, happily will be out also um, soon in April with University of California Press. Um, and so, yes, I'm just uh, you know, excited to be able to do these two very different lines of research at, at the same time. And, uh, and it's just been a, a real pleasure to, to be able to, to make the links between those two projects uh, as well.
0: Well, I look forward to reading the new book. Uh, this was a quite interesting conversation. Uh, Roberto, thank you for being with us today.
1: Hussein, thank you so much once again for the invitation. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks to you and to our listeners. Until next episode.